Good evening, Erev Tov. We're continuing in our introduction of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin to the third volume of his Keter Shem Tov. Before we get started, I just want to share with you a story. They tell a story about a man who was driving down the freeway, the highway, the motorway, whatever you call it, in whichever country you're watching this video. He's speeding down the highway, and a police officer sees him, pulls him over. The police officer gets out of his car, walks over to this man's driver side window, motions him to roll it down. Today we probably just press a button. The man rolled down his window and says, yes, officer. He says, license and registration, please. He says, officer, I would love to hand you my driver's license and my registration, but unfortunately I cannot do that. He says, why not? So I can't give you my license and registration because it's in the glove compartment. I said, so then reach on over and get it from the glove compartment. Said, officer, I would love to give you my driver's license from the glove compartment, but I can't do that. Officer says, why not? I can't do it because I have a firearm in my glove compartment. Do you have a firearm in your glove compartment? He says, yes. He says, so do it slowly. Make sure that I can see your hands at all times. Officer, I would love to open my glove compartment and do it slowly and you see my hands at all times and I'll be able to give you my driver's registration, but I cannot do that. He says, why not? He says, because the firearm that I have in my glove compartment is unlicensed. Those of you watching from the other side of the pond, for sure this concept of driving around with firearms is foreign to you. He says, why on earth are you driving around with an unlicensed firearm in your glove compartment? He says, well, officer, it's the same reason I was speeding. He says, why is that? This is because I just killed my wife with that gun and her dead body is in the back of my car in the trunk. The officer immediately steps back from the car, calls for backup. Two minutes don't pass and the car is surrounded by patrol cars. Everybody's got their guns pointed at him. The sheriff himself is there with a loudspeaker and says, Sir, license and registration, please. And the man slowly reaches for his license and registration and holds it out the window. The sheriff walks over cautiously to the car, takes his license and registration, looks at it, and says, sir, open your glove compartment. He opens up the glove compartment, and aside from a few papers, it's empty. The sheriff, alarmed, says, sir, please pop the trunk of your car. The man pops the back of the car. The sheriff walks around to the back of the vehicle, and he sees that it's just a carpet. It's clean. There's nothing in the back of the car. The sheriff walks over to the window and says, Sir, you're going to have to explain something to me here. The police officer radioed in that you had a, weren't willing to give a driver's license registration. You had an unlicensed gun in your glove compartment, and then you had your wife's dead body in the back of the car. And the man looks at the sheriff and says, Sir, please tell me that that officer is the same guy who lied to you that I was speeding on the highway as well. Context is everything. When you are able to teach something in the proper context, to be able to approach something in a new frame of reference, to understand all the pieces around it, it transforms the way you look in any given situation. One of the major flaws that exists in the world of Limut Torah today is that people are not willing to spend the time and energy that it takes to give themselves context to learn the things that they learn. And I'm sure that in the world of things that are wrong with the Jewish people, this doesn't rank in the top 10. But I'm talking about unique people. You are unique members of Am Yisrael, and therefore you are those who have dedicated serious amounts of time in your life to learn Torah. And I'm telling you that one of the major flaws of those people who come to study Torah are that they're not willing to put the time and energy into giving themselves the proper context that they need, the perspective they need, in order to learn Torah properly. I was listening recently to a recording, a video actually with my wife, of Rabbi Yosef Kapach, Kafech who was one of the very few videos we have of him, in which he shares that if you would ask a person, a thinking, mature person, if I were to teach you all of wisdom, if you could acquire all of wisdom, would you want it? He said, every person would tell you yes. Which is a real question though, if you would tell a person in order to acquire the wisdom that I'm willing to give you, are you willing to study all of the introductions? all of the prerequisite studies? Are you willing to put in the effort and the energy to learn everything you need to learn before you can learn what you wish to learn? 
said Rav Kapach, there are very few who sign up for that part. Very few who are willing to put in the effort to study what we call in Hebrew literature, Hagdamot. Hagdamot are introductions. Those students of mine in the Shiviti Beda Midash, going on seven years now, are already familiar with introductions. In our Agada class that we started, I'm, I'm pretty sure we did something close to 24 introduction classes. 24 introductions to what? To how many? How do you do 24 introductions to something? Because in order to properly understand something, you have to understand the context in which it exists. In these classes here that we've been studying together since we started the Shiviti Ben Midrash in the UK, I've been blessed to learn with people who have a very unique understanding and approach to Torah that's not homogenous, but it's very special to see, to see how each one of you thinks and learns. And many of the people that we bring up and the personalities that we bring up and the episodes in time and history that we bring up, I spend a significant amount of time delving into their history and their backgrounds and dates and facts and stories about these people. And there are some people, I'll call them uh, goal-oriented learners. They came to listen to a class about X. They didn't want to hear about Y and Z. They didn't want to hear about ABC. They came to hear about this. And the truth is that's really good for a university lecturer. In the world of lecturers, universities, I don't know, popular speakers, they say, I'm giving an hour lecture on this topic, and that's what they come to speak about. But that's why this shiur is in the context of a Ben Midrash. What is a Ben Midrash? A Ben Midrash is a learning center, a place, not necessarily a physical place, an environment which has no beginning and no end. I don't know when we will finish studying this topic, and I'm not sure when we'll be done with the writings of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. I'm not sure if we'll ever finish the writings of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. All I know is that right now we're focused on this sentence that's in front of us. And in order to do that properly, we'll have to do as many hakdamot as we need to do. And sometimes that derails people. Sometimes people go, oh, I didn't come for everything. I came for this class. As I'm sharing with you, the definition of the Bet Midrash, the reason why the Rabbanit and I name every type of shiur that we do a Ben Midrash is because we're not lecturers. My wife is a lecturer in university, I'm not. When I'm given an hour, I'm given 45 minutes, we speak about whatever we need to know in this hour, in these 45 minutes. I remember coming to Haraperetz thinking that there was going to be a shiur today in the laws of Shabbat. And instead of the laws of Shabbat, he had experienced something in Geula, in the neighborhood in Jerusalem, that he didn't appreciate and gave us a whole shiur about that instead. What about the shiur in the laws of Shabbat? You didn't come to learn the shiur in the laws of Shabbat, you came to learn Torah. And Torah is broad. Torah includes everything. And so today, we're going to delve into the historical side of the writings of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin, which means that he's already bringing us to the world of history. And if I normally give you historical backgrounds to other things, now I'm going to have to give historical context to the historical writings of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. Let's do this together. On page, I think you said nine in your PDF, page 11 in the Roman numerals, in the middle of the page. Ufpo askir and here I wish to include, says Rabbi Shem Tov, a number of incidents of separation, of division that happened in Am Yisrael. And I'm not able to speak at length about them for two reasons. The first, because I don't have enough time. If you recall, when we did the history of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin, he was running around different places, different communities. He wore many hats. And Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin says, I don't have the time. I don't have the time to delve into each one of these episodes at length. And the second reason, and this is something that you'll find by many, many Chachamim when they write their books. And every time I hear it, it breaks my heart. I'm also very concerned about the cost of printing this book. That they've far exceeded my expectations. Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin's Keter Shem Tov was not printed as a set. It was printed volume by volume as it came out. In fact, the fact that we can get it as a set is a pretty recent thing in Am Yisrael. Like anyone else, he wrote a book and he tried to fundraise the money needed to print this book. He tried to get the money so it should be distributed to different places. The Ben Ishchai Shalom. I remember reading about him some hundred manuscripts of his that never saw the light of the printing press. He didn't have money. He couldn't put together the money to get his books printed. I own two volumes in my home of a recently reprinted commentary of the Ben Ishchai, Rabbi Yosef Chaim of Baghdad, on the Torah. It was found 
In the early 2000s, when America invaded Iraq, it was found in a flooded basement of one of Saddam Hussein, one of his intelligence headquarters. It was found in the basement. They had uh, confiscated all types of handwritten works from the Jews. And one of them were handwritten writings of the Ben Ishchai. A commentary in the Torah. You can buy this commentary today quite inexpensively. It's called Hareach Atov or Reach Nichoach, the good scent. The word Rabbi Yosef Chaim spells out the word Reach, a scent. And I remember reading this introduction and saying, what would have happened if this would have stayed in that flooded basement for another week? And even if we would have found those papers, they would have been covered in mold and half erased. What would have happened if American soldiers never raided that basement? What would have happened then? And what happened to the dozens and dozens of other manuscripts of the Benish Chai's writings that we don't have? All I can tell you is from the writings that we do have, it tells you just how great of a loss of what we don't have. When I look at the writings of Rabbi Abraham, Rabbeinu Abraham ben Arambam, the son of Maimonides, and we have two of his commentaries in the book of Bereshit and the book of Shemot, but we're missing Vaikra. We're missing the rest of the Chumash. And when you read his commentaries on the first two books of the Chumash, and you see the quality, you see the insight, and you say, based on what I see, I know how much I have lost. And I'm thinking about Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. He's trying to write a book. Maybe not the first of its kind, but the most unique of its kind. And he's worried about writing too many words. Because what's going to happen if he doesn't have the money to print it? I think to myself, of all the Jewish books that fill people's libraries, I am contacted often to help people clear their libraries. Someone passes away, the books. And I can't tell you how many of these books that I look at, I'm not judging. Maybe I'm judging a little bit. I'm judging a little bit. They're not worth the paper on which they're written. How much can you regurgitate a concept? How many books can the major, without mentioning names, major Jewish printing houses keep printing over and over and over again, but the books of real Chachmei Israel they don't touch? Have you ever read the book Fahrenheit 451? About a world in which books are illegal. I'm not here hating on technology and people who read on Kindles. I count that as a book also. But you're living in a Jewish world that is exterminating its own books of value. And is hanging on to some type of popular culture Jewish self-help book. That's all that's left in the Jewish bookstores. Maybe a few books on the Rashot of Parashat Shavua, the weekly Torah portion. Aside from that, major works of Chachmei Israel are gone. But Baruch Hashem, we're not limited. Not by time. And we're not limited by finances because this doesn't cost us anything to do. And so I wish to do justice to Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin by delving into each one of these episodes that he mentions with the proper respect, the proper amount of time that they deserve. And we'll do as many as we can. The first of the episodes that he mentions we already discussed last week. And I see no need to repeat it. When the kingdom of Israel separates, and we follow, no, we, they follow Yerovam ben Nevat, they follow him to the kingdom of Israel. This is essentially the beginning of the lost ten tribes of Israel. By the way, the ten tribes of Israel is a fascinating concept. The whole conversation surrounding the ten tribes of Israel. I pulled up an article about all the possibilities of where these ten tribes are. You know, I'm not one of those people who researched the ten tribes very well. It's one of those things that there are people who this is their thing. Their passion is to talk all about where do the ten tribes go. And who are they? Where are the lost tribes of Israel? They identify them in different places. They range from Jews of possible communities in Assyria and Kashmir, the Bnei Israel of India, the Jews of Cochin. Are you familiar with the Jews of Cochin? Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin put out a book in his lifetime. I own a copy of it. I keep it in its packaging because I'm too afraid to open it too much. The condition is not mine. I bought it used and I have not been able to find another copy of it since I bought it. This book was written by Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin on the Jews of Cochin in which he explores the topics of the lost tribes of Israel. Not only did he write about them, but he took a tremendous amount of pictures of them and their elders and their lifestyles and different rituals that they had and recorded their minhagim and very much believed that this was part of a search of the lost tribes of Israel. 
The text of this book is found in the current editions of the Keter Shem Tov, but the historical research and the pictures and some of the other elements are not found in today's Keter Shem Tov. One day I hope to deal with this book properly uh, in the context of a bit of Midrash, but not for right now. There are those who claim that the Pushtan uh, tribes are, are Jewish, that the, the um, Taliban in Afghanistan are Jewish, there are all kinds of different Jew people in China that are Jewish, there are theories that Japanese are Jewish, all kinds of different theories that exist in the world. All you have to do is put in the 10 lost tribes in Wikipedia and see all the things that come out. By the way, not all of these things have any historical truth to them. Some of them are good tactics by Christian missionaries as they spread across the world to try to convince certain nations that they're Jewish anyways. And because they're Jewish, they should become Christian in whatever uh, circular logic that is. But, but it is what it is, and that's something that we've seen very often throughout Jewish history. The lost 10 tribes of Israel are just that they're lost. We don't know where they are. I have no idea where they are. I have no idea who they are. That means that 10 out of 12 tribes of Am Yisrael are gone. And I think that's the first thing we need to discuss, that is the cost of infighting in the Jewish community. It's not that we don't pray at each other's synagogues. It's not that we don't eat at each other's houses. The cost of that infighting is the ultimate loss of Jewish people. There are not enough of us left for us to keep separating and keep separating and keep separating to the point in which we disappear from the face of this earth. HaKadosh who promises we won't disappear. Fine. So he'll leave two Jews on the face of the earth. Where does HaKadosh who promise that we're not going to lose ten tribes of Israel? One day HaKadosh will return them to us? Fine. But we lost them. We have no idea where they are. You look around the Jewish community today. Whatever infighting exists, for whatever reasons, what, don't worry, we're all part of a fight somewhere. Like it or don't like it, you're part of it. The question is, how many Jews are you willing to lose before you decide to recalculate the decisions we've made in our history? How many more people can we lose? How many more tribes can go into exile and we'll never find them until HaKadosh Baruch miraculously brings them back? The second episode that Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin mentions is the Shomonim. Has anyone here heard of the Shomonim before? The Samaritans? Yeah, what do you know about Shomonim? They were supposedly brought to the land of Israel by uh, Sankarib to repopulate areas that he uh, took men and exiled the, you know, the Israelite men from. Okay, that's really important. So repopulation, I'm going to talk about that in just a second. Anyone else know anything about the current uh, Samaritan community? Are you familiar with them as a Jewish community? Yes, they live in Israel. Where? In Ashkelon, Ashdod, Kiryat Gat, that area. And they believe in their own Torah. They don't follow the Torah Shabbat, only Torah Shabbat. Okay, very good. Uh, Ima, have you ever met Shomonim before? Yes. Okay. And is it when I was at the, uni at the university, I met some people like that, yeah. Very interesting. They don't mix with the other Jews. Right, we're actually going to talk about that also. Uh, anyone else know anything about the Shomonim? Is there anything unique to them, or their customs, or their traditions? They still do the Pesach sacrifice. Very good, that's a big scene right before Pesach every year. There's the the Shomonim Korban Pesach, the sacrifice, and uh, very unique outfits, and, and uh, literally it looks like a scene straight out of the Bible, you know, straight out of the Torah. That's what you're thinking you're looking at, that's what you're looking at. Anything else? Anybody else? Does the text of their Torah is different from ours? The text of their Torah is different from ours, that's right, in a number of different ways. And so what my mother mentioned that they don't believe in the oral law, that's certainly true, but in terms of the written law, what and how much of it they believe in, that's something we're going to talk about right now. Okay, so I hear we're familiar with Shomonim a little bit. Let me do as much as I can to peel back some layers on Shomonim, to explain their history, to explain where they are today. Whether or not they really are part of the divisions of Am Yisrael, you know, initially I wasn't sure why Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin would mention the Shomonim as a breakaway group from the Jewish people, when like Pam mentioned, we're not even certain that that's the Jewish narrative of where the Shomonim come from. Uh, but this has to do, in my opinion, and it just came to me, this chidush just came to me today in the morning when I was researching again the Shomonim. 
about the personal connection of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin to the Shomronim. And if I forget to mention that by the end of the today's class, can please someone remind me to mention that? So he writes the Shomronim, he puts in parentheses the Kutim. You may have studied throughout the Talmud, you'll hear about the Kutim, the Kutim, the, it's, a, it's like a subcategory of Jews. We trust them on certain things, we don't trust them on other things. What happens if a kuti brings food? Did they take off the tumor? Did they not? There's a lot of conversation among our rabbis about the kuti. Not all of it is very positive. In fact, most of it is not. Uh, those of you who've studied Talmud and even Halakha, you'll sometimes see the word kuti pop up. The kutim and the shomonim are, let's, for the sake of today's conversation, let's just make them uh, synonymous with each other. Asherhem metei me'at, there's very few of them. And they still live today in Shechem. They only believe in the Torah from the beginning of Bereshit until the book of Yehoshua, including the book of Yehoshua. Though if you would like to research the difference in their book of Yehoshua, you're welcome to check out um, the, it's called the Samaritan book of Joshua. It's its own Style and that might be what Alexander Menashe was referring to. Aside from the actual script that they used to write the Torah, they're variant texts of different things in the Torah. Betsy, I saw you ask something about Kerites. We're going to actually discuss Kerites. At this point in history, there are no Kerites. So, and neither in the times of the Kutim, there were no Kerites. So, Kutim are older than the group of Kerites, though the Kerite movement, at least philosophically, definitely has roots in this period which the Jewish people are splintering off into different factions. And we will have an entire Shiu dedicated to the Kerai Jews. Let's talk about Shomonim. So maybe first and foremost it's important that we call them Shomonim. But the Shomonim don't call themselves Shomonim. So it's kind of we're giving people a title that they don't necessarily go by. The Shomonim call themselves Shomerim. Shomerim. Shomronim is referring to the geographical location of the Shomron in which you find the Shomonim, the Samaritans. And there's much debate whether the Shomron is named Samaria because of the Samaritans, or do the Samaritans receive their name because they live in Samaria. So that's the real question, and obviously Jewish and Samaritan sources will differ on this. By the way, there's a famous Jewish university, I will not mention it by name for personal reasons, uh, that has dedicated much time in the last few years dedicating, uh, studying Samaritan writings and Samaritan professors and Samaritan teachings and everything else. And by the way, I'm all for it. I just wish that that same Jewish university would spend even a quarter of that amount of time researching Sephardic Judaism and not just Samaritans. But you know, you can't ask for everything, right? You just can only ask for some things. The Shomoni, most of them live near what we call Har Gerizim, the Mount of Gerizim. And if you're familiar with the Torah and the Harival, Har Gerizim, these are our mountains for the Shomonim. Har Gerizim, the Mount of Gerizim, is what for us the Temple Mount is. And we're going to discuss that history in just a brief moment. The Shomonim call themselves the Shomerim or the Shamerim because they are the guardians of the Torah. They view themselves as the real Jews. They are the real, authentic Jewish people that go back to Moshe Rabbeinu. And we are a splinter group that broke off of them and created our own religion of rabbinic Judaism. And I will discuss that as well. But therefore, Shomronim reject the title Shomronim. And so today, if I fluctuate between them, I don't mean any disrespect to Shomronim anywhere in the world, simply in modern Hebrew. That is what they are referred to as. In their heyday, in their prime, the Shomronim claimed to have had about a million people as part of their group. Today, the Shomonim number just under 800 people. So the group of Shomonim left in the world today are just under 800 people. And we mentioned they don't marry and they don't intermarry, so that's become a real problem, and we'll discuss that in terms of contemporary issues that the Shomonim have. According to the Samaritans, according to the Shomonim, they are the pure Jews. If you look in the book of Divrei Hayamim, in chapter 5, in verses 29 to 31, there's the following psukim. Uvnei Aharon, Nadav, Avihu. The children of Aharon the Kohen are Nadav and Avihu. Then, and Elazar and Itamar. Elazar had a child, holded Pinchas. Pinchas holded Avishua. And then next, Vavishua 
הולידת בוקי. אבישוע gave birth to בוקי, ובוקי הולידת עוזי. So you have from Aaron HaKohen all the way down through Buki and then Uzi. The Samaritans had a period in their history which they call the days of Ratucha, Rachuta, sorry. The days of Rachuta are days of goodness, the, the golden age perhaps of the Samaritans. And that is when, according to their belief, all the Jewish people believed in the original authentic Torah, which was the Samaritan understanding of the Torah. We all worshipped at Har Gerizim. We all were together there at Har Gerizim. And then there was a split. The split happened between Eli HaKohen. Do you remember Eli? He interacts with one of our mothers. Which of his mother, our mothers does he interact with? Hannah, very good. So Eli, remember, accuses Hana of being drunk in the Bet HaMikdash. This period is very important in history. They believe that Eli HaKohen had a falling out with Uzi HaKohen, Uzi the son of Buki. And that Uzi ben Buki stayed with the authentic Jews in Har Gerizim. And that those who followed Eli HaKohen followed him to Shiloh, to Shiloh, where they built the new Mishkan. And that that essentially is the beginning of the Jewish people as we consider ourselves Jewish people. And according to their history, they are the faithful Jews, mostly descendants of Menashe and Ephraim, who are followers of the Kohanim. And the Kohanim led them in the true faith of Moshe. Whereas the Jews, they were deviated and they went down a different path. Now you should know, this generation of Eli is very important because Eli himself had issues with his kihunah, Remember, Hana accuses him of accusing her falsely. Eli HaKohen's children are, con- are, are accused of corrupting the kihuna, corrupting the Jewish government at the time surrounding the Ben Mikdash. I have a shiur about this in my Rambam Mishneh Torah class, about Shemuel and everything else that happened in that generation. This is a generation where there was split, even among those Jews who went to Eli, according to the, the Shomronim. Already there was politics that were, were bubbling under the surface over there. They consider this separation in the Jewish people between the Shomonim and what we'll call, for lack of a better term, the Jews, the rabbinic Jews who follow, that's really not the correct term, but who follow Eli HaKohen, they consider this to be the downfall of the Jewish kingdom. And they call that period in Jewish history the days of Pnuta, the days of Hastarat Panim, of divine, a lack of divine revelation in the world. The Jewish version of the story of Shomonim, though, is entirely different. And we don't accept the Shomonim narrative at all as to their history. Uh, what Pam mentioned is actually the understanding that our Chachamim had in the story of the Shomonim. If you look in the book of Melachim, the second book of Melachim, chapter 17, verse 24, it talks about the king of Ashur, the Assyrians, who come into Eretz Israel. And part of the Assyrian tactic in ruling over different populations was to displace them from their geographic locations. So they would take people from Israel and disperse them elsewhere. That's how the ten tribes really got lost in the first place. They were uprooted and sent to different places around the world. And then the Assyrians would bring in other tribes to live in those places where they had uprooted other people. According to Chachmei Israel, according to our rabbis, those Shomronim who found themselves around the region of Shechem, those Shomronim were brought there. They were non-Jewish people who were brought there by the Assyrians. And if you look in the Nevi'im there, if you look in the Book of Melachim, there's a very tragic episode in which this group of Shomonim are being attacked constantly by lions. And they reach out to the king of Ashur for help. He ends up sending them a Kohen to teach them the Torah of Hashem. They end up converting to Judaism, but throughout rabbinic literature, they're called the converts of the lions. They didn't convert to Judaism because they believed in Judaism. They converted to Judaism because they were afraid of being devoured by the lions, and they believed that accepting upon themselves the Torah of the Jewish people would give them some kind of protection from whatever wild animals. You're welcome to look into the story on your own. And because of this, they always have some kind of uh, suspected status in rabbinic literature. They're Jews. Technically, they went through a conversion. Did they do it for the right reasons? Not necessarily. Did they view themselves as part of the Jewish people? Not necessarily. And throughout rabbinic literature, you find a common theme, and that is, we accept the Shomonim as Jews 
in regards to whatever they believe in the Torah. So if they believe in Shabbat, for example, we'll trust them in matters of Shabbat. But if they don't believe in matters of Kashrut, because those are rabbinic, then we cannot possibly trust them in matters of Kashrut. By the way, this isn't just a, a innovation regarding the Shomonim. We find this even with the Karaites living in Egypt and other such places that, where the Jewish community accepted them for the things that they were willing to accept from the Torah. And whatever they weren't, they weren't. And they always had this unique status in the middle. There's another theory that suggests that in the book of Ezra, you find that when the Jews come back from exile, there's a group of Jews that are living in Israel who want to help. They're called Tzarei Israel. They're like the downtrodden of Israel. They want to help the returnees to Israel to build the Bet Mikdash. If you remember, Koresh had allowed them to build the Bet Mikdash. And what happened was that these Jews who were locals wanted to help the Jews who had returned to Israel to build the Bet Mikdash. And those Jews said, you don't have the right to help us build the Bet Mikdash. You're not truly Jewish. You were not given permission to build the Bet Mikdash. And some suggest that that group of locals who were not exiled were actually the Shomonim. What's the reason that they were not sent into exile? Possibly because they weren't considered Jewish enough to be exiled from the land of Israel because they had already been exiled to the land of Israel by the Assyrians. Now, I'm not coming to tell you which way history actually is, and there have been many studies of the DNA of the Shomonim to try to figure out if they're related to the Jewish people, if they're not, if they're Middle Eastern from another place, you're welcome to look this all up on your own, but there are two narratives, essentially, to the Shomonim. Those who were authentic Jews, and we broke away from them, that's the Shomonim narrative, and then there's the narrative that we have that they're not Jewish at all in the first place, and they were brought to Eretz Israel by the Assyrians, and that they are of an entirely different religion that resembles Judaism, but is not actually Judaism. They had many episodes with the Jewish people in the Persian Empire. Uh, the relationships between the Shomonim and the local Jewish community were not very great. Uh, like I mentioned to you that the Jews were building the Bet Mikdash, they did not allow these alleged Shomonim to build the Bet Mikdash with them. That led to all kinds of fighting and, and revolutions and complications. In the Hellenist period, uh, there's also some complications with the Shomonim. If you remember the story of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great comes to Jerusalem. Why does he come to Jerusalem? According to rabbinic literature, he comes to Jerusalem because the Shomonim, the Samaritans, had convinced him that the Jewish people were planning a rebellion against him. And that they deserve to have their city destroyed, their Bet-Mikdash destroyed. Do you remember the story in rabbinic literature? What happens? Alexander the Great comes to Jerusalem, and he's greeted by the gates of Jerusalem by who? Shimon HaTzadik. Shimon very good one. He's greeted by Shimon the Righteous, who you'll find him in Perkavot. Shimon HaTzadik greets Alexander the Great, and at that point, Alexander the Great gets off of his horse and he bows down to Shimon HaTzadik and everybody's surprised at this turn of events. What is Alexander the Great bowing down to Shimon HaTzadik for? And he says a story that every time before he goes to war, there's a man with a beard who appears to him and tells him, you will be successful in battle, go to war. You won't be successful in battle, don't go to war. And whenever he listened to this image that came to him in a dream, he was successful. And he says, this image of the person that came to me in my dream is none other than this Shimon HaTzadik who guided me through my wars. Suffice it to say that the Shomoni were not successful. The Ben Mikdash was not destroyed by Alexander the Great, but it was another attempt. And if you wish to try to understand a little bit, aside from basic animosity that exists between the Jewish people and the Shomonim, there's this attitude that the Jewish people are making the mount, the Temple Mount, the holy place, where according to them, the holy mountain should be the Mount of Gerizim and not the Temple Mount. And because of this part of their desire to force the Jewish people to pray at Har Gerizim, that they ultimately wish for the destruction of Jerusalem itself. We have few records in early literature about the Shomonim. Josephus accuses the Shomonim. Josephus, you know his history and which camps he belongs to or doesn't belong to. Josephus accuses the Shomonim of having a certain tendency that whenever it's popular to be Jewish, they try to convince everybody they're Jewish. And that whenever it's not popular to be Jewish, you know, people are coming to massacre the Jews, they always try to say, oh, we're not actually Jewish, sometimes we're Tzidonim, sometimes we're always from a different nation. And he accuses the Shomonim of, of being two-faced, of showing themselves sometimes as Jews, showing themselves sometimes not as Jews. 
whether uh, Josephus is correct or not in, in uh, diagnosing the Shomonim, it's simple to say that this is the prevalent attitude that existed among the rabbis towards the Shomonim. They didn't feel that they were brethren of theirs in times of suffering. They only wished to dance in Jewish success but not be there when the Jews themselves were suffering. In the Roman period, Josephus talks there about their relationship as well. There are some terrible massacres that happen with the Romans on the Shomonim. The Shomonim at this point also suffer for being heretics in the land of Israel. But I think that that all changes in the generation of the Byzantine era, in which their greatest leader perhaps, Baba Rabba is what he's called, you can Google him, Baba Rabba, uh, led to certain reforms of the Samaritan community. He opens up houses of prayer that were previously closed. This was a very good era for the Shomonim. And that all stops, unfortunately for them, with the Arab forces entering the land of Israel, taking over the land of Israel. Once the Muslims conquered Jerusalem, they began to persecute the Shomoni community. The Samaritans end up running away from uh, Israel. And that brings us to the Ottoman Empire. In the Ottoman Empire, the Shomoni were being persecuted in Damascus. They run to Israel. It becomes very dangerous for them. It's in these years, in the 1800s, from 1785 to 1820, that they were banned by the Ottoman Empire from offering their Pesach offering. So what you know to be Shomonim offer their Pesach offering on, on the Mount of Gerizim, there was a period in history in which they were prohibited from doing that. There was an earthquake that hit them in 1837, which wiped out um, 20 people of an only 200 population of Samaritans, which was a devastating blow to their community. But all of that pales in comparison to a man by the name of Ibrahim Facha. Have you heard of Ibrahim Facha? There are many stories in the Jewish, uh, in Jewish literature about this terrible Ibrahim Facha. He was essentially the ruler of Egypt who makes his way into the land of Israel, makes the lives miserable of all kinds of people who he comes across. But he has a unique attitude to the Shomonim, that he does not persecute them as Jews. He persecutes them because he believes they're idol worshippers. He believes they're idol worshippers, and because of that, he needs to free the land of Israel, the Holy Land, from all those who are pagans. And he begins to massacre and do terrible things to the Shomonim at that time. Ultimately, the people who are given refuge under Ibrahim Facha's reign in the land of Israel are those who believe in one of three holy books. Those who believe in the Tanakh, those who believe in the New Testament, or those who believe in the Quran. Anybody who doesn't believe in one of those three books is considered a pagan, and Ibrahim Facha is set out to destroy them. The Samaritans quickly come to claim, listen, we believe in the Torah, we believe in the five books of Israel. And when Ibrahim Facha demands to see the Torah of the Shomonim, they show him the Samaritan Torah, which as Alexander Menashe mentions, is written in a different script. If you're familiar with Ezra changing the script of Hebrew letters to Assyrian letters, they have perhaps much more closer to the original Hebrew language in their Sefer Torah. If you Google a Samaritan Sefer Torah, it's a very unique looking Sefer Torah. It almost looks like a Sephardic Sefer Torah, but it has three, three crowns on top. It opens up, and inside is a text of the Torah in Hebrew, but with different letters. And because the Arabs could not recognize those letters, they decided that they are kofrim, that they are liars, that they are, they are deniers of the Torah, of the five books of Moses. And at that point in time, the Shomonim reach out to the chief rabbi of Jerusalem. And they ask the chief rabbi of Jerusalem if he would be willing to provide them a letter that would protect them from Ibrahim Facha and declare, not that they are Jews, but that they believe in the Torah as do the Jewish people. I just want to read to you, there was a Dr. Levy he was the secretary of Moses Montefiore. He came to Shechem in 1838. And he writes that after Ibrahim Facha came to the Shechem, to the Shomonim, and he accused them of being idolaters. The Shomonim at this point in their life were desperate. They knew that Ibrahim Facha, in the blink of an eye, was going to destroy them and murder them. 
And they were terrified. This is the secretary of Moses Montefiore. The chief rabbi in Jerusalem at the time, you may recall his name, he's the Rishon Tzion, the Sephardic Chacham Bashi, as Rabbi Chaim Avraham Gagin. Do you remember Rabbi Chaim Avraham Gagin? Rabbi Chaim Avraham Gagin, we discussed him when we spoke about Rabbi Salam Moshe Chazan and the war is also surrounding the reform movement and everything else that happens there. Rabbi Chaim Avraham Gagin is the chief rabbi of Israel at the time and he steps in to protect and save the lives of the Shomronim. And he writes the following words in 1841. He gives a certificate to the Shomronim saying, Ha'am HaShomroni, the Shomroni nation, Hu Anaf Mi Bnei Israel is a branch of the Jewish people. Who believes in the truth of our Torah. Rabbi Chaim Abraham Gagin puts in writing that the Shomronim are part of the Jewish people who believe in the Torah. And just like that, he saves the Shomronim from being massacred by Ibrahim Fakha. When I think of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin, and why he would mention the Shomronim as part of the Jewish people. I don't know this to be a fact, but it makes me wonder if perhaps in the Gagin family, this is Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin's grandfather, maybe great-grandfather. He knows that his ancestors came to the aid of the Shomronim and viewed the Shomronim at least Jewish enough to protect their lives. And so Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin writes as one of the earliest descents from the Jewish people are the Shomronim. But they're still part of our family. They may be part of our extended family. But this is one of the major divides that breached the walls of Israel, of the Jewish people. There's been much research that has been done about the Shomronim in modern Israel today. The Shomronim today number around 820, 830 people in all of Israel. Because there were so many Shomonim, so few Shomonim, and not many people who they could marry, genetic diseases began being a problem among the Shomonim of late. And the Shomonim were in a dilemma as to how to perhaps bring some fresh blood into their gene pool. And they allowed their men to marry non-Shomoni women and bring them into the Jewish faith, uh, into the Shomoni faith. Technically, a Shomoni woman could marry a man who is not Shomoni, but became one. And what has happened in the last years, since 2007, at least according to the Museum of the Shomonim, 60 Jewish women are today married to Shomonim and live in the community. There's a number, a few Muslim women who joined the Shomoni community from Turkey. And in the last decade or so, there have been a number of Ukrainian women who have married into the Shomoni community. The reason why it's so easy to do this is because conversion to the Shomoni faith, at least for women, maybe not for men, but at least for women, does not require much formal study. There's not much that has to be done in order for a woman to become a convert to the Shomoni faith. And in recent history, there have been others that have joined the Shomoni community as part of their uh, extending, extending their, their community and trying to freshen the blood pool that is in the Shomoni community. The Shomonim are faithful citizens of the state of Israel. They're known for their positive attitudes towards Israel. But the Shomonim are in a really big bind. Because half of the Shomonim live in Arab territories and half of the Shomonim live in Jewish territories. And because of this, anything that they do or anything they say that can be overtly Zionistic could get half of their people in major trouble with their Arab neighbors. And because of this, draft to the Israeli military of Shomonim is optional. There's no mandatory draft of Shomonim. In recent history, the Shomonim who live on the Israeli side have actually not just drafted their children, but have really pushed and motivated their children to join Tzahal today in the ranks of the Israeli army. There are, uh, there are a number of Shomonim who have served in the ranks of, of uh, the Jewish army. And I think when you look back at these people and you say, these are long lost cousins of Am Yisrael. There are only about 800 of them left in the world. And Rishem Tov Gagin still counts that as one of the major breaches in the wall of Israel. If we lost 10 tribes, they've lost hundreds of thousands of people to this divide. 
Now, do they believe like us? The Shomonim don't believe like us. I'm not an expert in the Shomonim faith. The Shomonim do believe in one God, the God of Israel. That's what they call him. They do not identify as Jews for the very simple reason that they are not Yehudim. They view themselves from the tribe of Ephraim and Menashe. And because of that, they refer to themselves as Bnei Israel, the children of Israel, but not as Yehudim per se. They believe in the Torah. And the Torah was given to Moshe Rabbeinu. They have a separate Ten Commandments than we do. One of their Ten Commandments, the tenth of their Ten Commandments, believes that Har Gerizim is the mountain which God had chosen for the Jewish people to build the Ben Mikdash. And that's a central part of their faith is Har Gerizim. They believe that Moshe Rabbeinu was the greatest of all prophets for a very simple reason, that according to them, Moshe Rabbeinu is the only prophet. There only was one prophet, and that is Moshe Rabbeinu. And they do believe, though this may only have happened later in Shomoni history, they do believe in days of reward and consequences and punishment and, and afterlife and such things, but there's conversation among the Shomonim exactly what that means. And when I look around the Jewish people and I say, you know, there are groups of people in Am Yisrael who we're disowning every day. And I wonder, at which point will we stop? At which point will we stop creating new Shomronim? At which point will we reach a place where we say, you know, there's only 800 left. Either we throw them out or we bring them in. I'm not advocating now for a mass conversion of Shomronim or to harm their faith or to harm Chazrullam, anything about them. When I look at Amisa and I say, look, these people believed in Hashem. They believed in the Torah. They believed in the afterlife. They believed in Moshe Rabbeinu. They believe in so many things that were so close to us. And yet we still separated from each other. And you look around the Jewish community and say, look at how many Jews believe in Hashem. They believe in the Torah. They believe in Moshe Rabbeinu. They believe in an afterlife. They believe in all of the things that we hold sacred, except for one thing. The only outcome of such a relationship is going to be this. That we're going to find ourselves one more time in another galut, in another exile, with only a few of us left from each other. What will happen then? How long will the cycle keep going? If you'll give me just a little more time, I wanted to do the next group on the list. It's not as long as the one that we did today. The Shomonim I spent a significant amount of time on. And I do believe that the reason why they're included in the list in the first place is because of Rabbi Shem Dov Gagin's personal connection through his family to the Shomonim. Because if you were to ask me, are the Shomonim a breakaway of Am Yisrael? Most likely, according to our sages, and what Pam mentioned in the beginning of this class, is that according to traditional Jewish sources, the Shomonim are part of the Jewish people in as much as they converted to Judaism but not so much in terms of their history, they are part of Am Yisrael. The next category that Rabbi Shem Dov Gagin mentions in Gimel is Ha'isim, the Yisins. By the way, we don't have early Jewish literature that really refers to the Yisins as this group. The Yisins is an interesting question, exactly where they fall out in the Jewish spectrum of the Second Temple and everything else that happens there. But we know that Josephus already uses the word Yisins, and so in Hebrew we say Yisim. And he, who are the Yisins? They're a group of righteous, pious people in the time of the Second Temple. Ascetics. And they separated from the rest of the Jewish community. And they had their own little group, essentially. And the relationship of the Pharisees the Pirushim, that's us, by the way. Towards the Yisins, we're not particularly warm. I remember once telling a Christian, and by the way, the Christians are not on this list, so I'm not certain why Rav Shemtov Gagin chooses to write the Christians off of this list. And it could be that you and I will have to dedicate time studying about that. But essentially, the Yisins are a group of Jews that perhaps created what we call the Pharisees. What do I mean by that? Very often in Jewish history, we only become something because we're reacting to something else. Jews become orthodox when they react to a reform movement. Jews become modern orthodox because they're reacting to an ultra-orthodox. Jews become this because of something else. We're living in a Judaism that is mostly reactionary. It almost isn't original at all. You look at the Jewish people as healthy, stable, balanced. Uh, Judaism that has integrity almost doesn't exist. 
for the most part, every Jewish group is reacting to something else that is going on in the Jewish community. And I once said, you know, I, I, you've heard me speak about reform and conservative and other denominations. I, will, I can forgive them for pretty much anything in the history of the world, except for the fact that they made Orthodox Jews. The fact that they created Orthodox Jews, I will never forgive any other denomination of Judaism for that. The destruction of Am Yisrael in our generation begins when Orthodox Jewry begins. I see Lilina is laughing. I hope I'm, I'm not getting myself in too much trouble. And at the end of the conversation of, tzeduk, uh, of uh, Yisins, we're going to talk about Tzedukim. And I believe that after there are Yisins and after there are Sadducees, then ultimately we create the first Orthodox Jews that are called Pharisees. Those are the Pirushim. And it's unhealthy. It's unhealthy when we have a type of Judaism that is constantly reacting, 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 and there's no room anymore to actually ask Jewish questions. So much so that if you bring up a halakha, and you tell us the halakha is this way, yeah, but if we do that, they're going to say that we're reform. In the, in the Orthodox community, it's the worst insult you can hurl at somebody. So what? So what if they're going to call you that? Well, it's the truth, no? It's what it says in halakha, no? There's a famous rabbi in the United States, Professor Saul Lieberman. Now where he stood exactly in the Jewish spectrum, that's beyond the scope of my conversation. You're welcome to read, there's a very short book, worthwhile reading in general about orthodoxy in the United States by Professor Mark Shapiro called Saul Lieberman and the Orthodox. Saul Lieberman once wrote a note to his betadin, to his rabbinic court. And I don't have the exact words in front of me right now, but Saul Lieberman told his betadin, don't be afraid of innovating things in halakha. You will never be persecuted by the Orthodox for innovating things in Halakha. They expect that of you. They expect that you're going to make new things in Halakha. Rather, the Orthodox will only attack you when you teach things that are actually written explicitly in Halakha. That's where they'll jump on you. I, I wish I had his elegant words in front of me right now. But this is the truth. The truth is you can make up a new chumrot, you can make up new customs, you can make up new anything in the Jewish community today. But God forbid you pull out a shulchan aruch and teach people the laws of kashrut and you should see what happens in the Orthodox community after that. I have no experience in this topic, by the way. Go and teach somebody the laws of Pesach according to the codes of Jewish law. The Rambam, the shulchan aruch, the Talmud. Start talking about Jewish concepts as they're written in classic Jewish literature and you will become enemy number one of the Orthodox Jewish community. It's a reactionary community. The Pharisees react to something. And so for today, I wish to just take a few more minutes of your time and finish with the Yisins, so that next week we could talk about the Tzedukim. The Yisins were a group of Jews, as Rabbi Shem mentioned, that separated from the Jewish community. They were extremely pious, ascetic Jews. We know of them from three main sources, from Philo, from a man, but I'm not so familiar with, uh, Plinius was uh, uh, the elder who wrote about them, as well as Josephus, Yosef ben Matityahu. According to most researchers, they appear on the Jewish scene around the time of the Hashemunayim. So the story of Hanukkah, that era in Jewish history is when we start to see splintering elements of the Jewish people connected uh, to this time, but really you find in the second Bet Mikdash is when we're dealing a lot with all of these breakaway sects in the Jewish people. Most famously, the Essenes are connected to the Qumran sect and the Qumran sect's Dead Sea Scrolls, though modern researchers are not all convinced that the Essenes are actually directly responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it's really beyond the scope of my research to get into where are the Dead Sea Scrolls from? Are they from Pharisees who are running away and buried them? Were they from the Essenes? Were they possibly from the Sadducees? Were they... There's all kinds of theories out there. I'm not an expert in the Dead Sea Scrolls at all. I'm sure some of you are, and you're welcome to figure that out on your own. But for the sake of today's conversation, the Essenes, like I mentioned, it's a name that happens later on. There are many different understandings why they're called Essenes, uh, at least according to Philo. Philo believes that Essenes has to do with the word chasidut, piety. It's a certain pious uh, word. There are some researchers that suggest it's a, it's a perversion of the Hebrew word etzah, of advice, and everyone has their own understanding. I don't really care much. Aside from, there is a group, there were, it was a group called the Essenes. Philo writes about them some fascinating things. Philo writes, There's about 4,000 and up of these Yusins. 
והם קובעים את מושבם בכפרים ולא בערים. They intentionally live in villages and not in cities. מהם עובדים את האדמה ומהם עוסקים במלאכות שונות המרבות שונות בעולם. And they work in agriculture or in types of trade that increase peace in the world. The Essenes prefer not to hoard gold and silver. They don't buy large pieces of property. They don't even desire to make much money. They only wish to make the amount of money that they need to live. And they're almost from the few people on earth, says Philo. who have any type of, they live really only with what they need. Unique to Yisian society is that they were the first to get rid of the concept of slavery. So if you've ever been bothered about the halakhic conversation surrounding slavery, the Yisians were the first to do away with this concept. They're all free and they all help each other. I, I'm going to borrow a term. A lot of what the communal life of the Essenes comes off as is some type of utopian socialist ideal. Everyone helps everybody. Everybody feeds everybody. Everybody works with everybody. They stay away from all types of things that cause conflict or strife. Uh, they don't talk about philosophy much. He says that they consider those who deal with philosophy and logical endeavors to be people who are just blabbering uh, childish things. They study, they spend much time studying the Torah of ethics. You need almost divine knowledge to understand just how ethical the Essenes were. They have three main tenets, Avat Elohim, the love of God, Ahavat Musar, the love of ethics and self-perfection, They love each other, friendship. So belief in God, belief in self-perfection, and belief of brotherhood. Many, many observers of the Sadducees, uh, of the Yisins, saw in them some tremendous people. Philo essentially summarizes and says, The lifestyle of the Yisins, Zacha efu l'shevach ulatila koraba. It receives such great praise. That many people, even great kings, look at admirably upon the Essenes. Josephus writes about them. They love each other more than the regular Jewish people love each other. They stay away from eating meat. They stay away from anything that's not healthy for them. They also stay away from procreation because they had a hard time trusting in women. Yosef Matatiao, Josephus writes that they have a very hard time believing their wives that they are monogamous. And because of this accusation, perhaps, towards their wives, Some also suggest that it had to do with very extreme understandings of the laws of ritual purity and family purity. Ultimately, the Essenes are almost never found having children. It's a, a difficult concept that happens there. And the Essenes are this ethical group of magnificent utopian Jews that almost completely disappear off the face of the earth. Some historians even blame themselves and their lifestyle for eradicating themselves. I don't know that I agree. The Essenes have a unique connection to the Christians because there are historians who suggest that Jesus, when he left the Jewish community, spent a significant amount of time in his life studying from the Essenes. And they connect certain Christian ideas to Essene ideas. Not all historians believe this to be correct, but the early history of the Christians is directly connected to everything that happens here in this period. The Shomonim and the Christians have their own unique connection. And it's important when understanding Christianity to always understand Christianity as a Jewish person would understand Christianity and not to understand Christianity the way Christians understand Christianity. Uh, Rabbi Faur wrote a book that I only read in the last year or so, but even before reading this book, but I recommend it tremendously. It's called The Gospel According to the Jews. 
When you read the gospel, like a person who studied Talmud, like a person who knows Torah, it's a whole different book than what our brothers and sisters of the Christian faith actually know how to read and believe in. The stories that are there, the political incidents that are there, the jabs that are undermining other groups of people, all of those things are part of this period of Jewish history. There's a very famous lesson that Yeshu, that Jesus gives his disciples. And this lesson is something he talks about a messenger who went on his way, a traveler who went from Bethany to Jericho, was on his way to Yericho. Are you familiar with the road to Yericho? Has anyone ever been on that road? So let's imagine this. You're standing on top of the Kotel. Let's pretend. On the, God forbid you were on the Temple Mount, right? God forbid. Let's say you were standing there and you were looking towards the, the other side of Jerusalem. So you're looking towards the, what they call today Eastern Jerusalem. You have Halazetim, uh, Mount of Olives, and you have Mount Scopus, Halatzofim. So in Halatzofim, there's a road that goes up Halatzofim and back down, and that's the road that goes to Yericho, that goes to Jericho. This road was a very famous road because that's how you get back and forth to Jerusalem. Yeshu tells a story about a man who was traveling the road towards Yericho. And he's climbing up this mountain. And as he gets to the top, he's mugged, he's, he's uh, ambushed by robbers. What are they doing at the top of the mountain? Why don't they attack him at the bottom of the mountain? We have to know Pshat in the New Testament. Why don't they attack him at the bottom of the mountain? Why should we spend energy on a person who still has strength? Let's let him tire himself out. By the time he's at the top of the mountain, he'll be weak. We'll attack him there. This is a very famous place for highway robbers to hang out in this period of history. And so this man is there. He gets mugged, robbed, left bloodied and beaten on the floor. A Kohen is traveling towards the Bet Midash. According to Yeshu, he tells us, the Kohen comes by, and the Kohen sees him. And the Kohen is concerned, doesn't want to deal with him. Tumat, maybe he's dead, maybe he doesn't want to touch him, he won't be able to go to the temple. He ignores him and walks, scurries on to Yerushalayim. What's the next person after a Kohen? Who comes after a Kohanim? No, a Levi, a Levi comes. A Levi comes, now comes a Levi, and... The Levi sees him, ignores him, keeps walking towards Jerusalem. Who's the third person who's walking down the road? You would think it would be a Jewish person, right? Yeah. Just a Israel. No, it's a Samaritan. Why would he plug in a Samaritan right here? The Samaritan sees this man and goes over to him and takes care of him and nurtures, nurtures him. And, and he's the good Samaritan. You ever seen the church of the good Samaritan? Or people tell you, will you please be a good Samaritan? Yeshu was, it's not a true story, the story. It's a parable. Yeshu is programming into his students a certain approach towards the Jewish people. Who are the good people here in the land of Israel? There's Pharisees, there's Rabbinic Jews, and there's Shomonim. Now, the Shomonim may really not be Jewish, but look how good they are. They're good Samaritans, good people. Not like those Kohanim or those Levi'im. The Jewish people don't have a chance to redeem themselves in Yeshu's parable. And perhaps, I'm not sure if we'll do it, we'll have a shiur on the early history of Christianity, at least according to our Chachamim. But if you are able to read the New Testament, and obviously with whatever historical accuracy the New Testament has or doesn't have, but even those who wrote the New Testament after Yeshu, we're all familiar with the Jewish faith and the Jewish politics here. Undermining the Jewish people, undermining the rabbis of the Jewish people, undermining the Pharisees, is part of a tactic. Yeshu is a politician. Before he's a religious leader, yes, the Christians may talk to you about him being a poor man and being a shepherd and uh, the, the going to the lost uh, sheep of Israel, whatever else he has. But the truth is that Yeshu, at least according to our sources, Yeshu is a statesman. Yeshu hangs out with very wealthy people. Yeshu goes to places where they tend to him hand and foot, literally. He leans on fine couches, even according to the Christians, where Yeshua is buried is a place that is, or his family is buried, a place that is reserved for aristocracy. Yeshua hangs out with the tax collectors who are a group of people that are notorious for their corruption, their financial and political corruption. In the eyes of our rabbis, Yeshua represents all that is evil in Jewish politics of the Second Temple. The rejection of Yeshua 
has very little to do with the Mashiach and what it says in Isaiah 53. And everything to do with the lifestyle and the mentality which Yeshua is trying to bring to the Jewish people. He falls out of love with the Pharisees. It's not in today's Shiur. I have a Shiur in Yeshua in the New Testament. But ultimately, when you read these stories and you begin to create a, perhaps what's left of this world, very few of us deal with Shomonim, very few of us deal with Yassins or even Sadducees. But I think we deal with the Christian community on a daily basis. And part of understanding where that group comes from is by truly understanding everything that happens here. Abutai, I really want to do the Tzidukim today, but I won't get a chance. So God willing, next week's Shi'u, I wish to dedicate to the study of the Sadducees, the Tzidukim. The Tzidukim, who I believe gave birth to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees gave birth, according to our Chachamim, to seven types of dysfunctional Jewish individuals. According to our rabbis, there are seven types of bad Pharisees. And those seven types, we have managed to turn into the prototype of what a good Orthodox Jew looks like. And Bezat Hashem, next week's Shi'u, I'm going to sit with you and discuss the history of the Tzidukim, the history of the Pirushim, the rabbi's criticism of those fringe elements of Pirushim, those Pharisees that destroy the world in the eyes of our rabbis, and show you how today's religious community has essentially taken the Pharisees that our rabbis abhorred, that our rabbis viewed are destroyers of the Jewish faith, and has put them on a pedestal of the ideal Jewish person. And orthodoxy is just a breakdown, it's just a, not a breakdown, it's a manifestation of all the ills that existed in the world of the Pharisees. Baruch Hashem, we merit to have them leading our generation today. And it's something that we must discuss, we must do it together. I hope I didn't bore you too much today. Bezlat Hashem, next week we're going to be jumping into the world of Tzedukim, the world of Pirushim, and understanding some of the origins of Orthodox Jewry and all of the problems that face that it faces today. God willing, we'll do that next week on Tuesday. Thank you for your patience with me today.